Welcome, everyone. This session is the Building and Technical Team session, and my name is Doug Rayburn. I'm going to be moderating the panel. I am um, currently the CEO and founder of a mobile app development company called Apprise Inside. And today we're just going to be talking about building a technical team and some experiences that our panel members have had in their past careers and current careers in building a team. So we wanted to start it off by kind of finding out a little bit more about the people attending this session. So if everybody could let me know who out there is a technical director or manager that's responsible for building a team. So we've got a couple. How many people are developers trying to get in with a music technology company and getting on one of these technical teams? Nobody, all right. <laughs> How many people have worked on a product development team before and have actually released and, and put a product out in the marketplace? Okay. And then how many people are trying to hire somebody right now? How many people are trying to hire more than five people right now? Okay. Great. That gives us a little idea who we're talking to here. So I'm going to let each panel member here introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about their, their current projects and their teams. We'll just go right down the order, or right down the list. All right, I'll kick it off. My name's Matt Paul. I'm a co-founder and CTO at Schematic Labs. I build a, a mobile app called Sound Tracking, and um, you know we've been at it for about two years now. The product came out one year ago. I think we just reached our fifth member of a technical team, so it's been kind of small so far in the beginning. But um, it's a challenging hiring market, and we had a pretty good chat backstage kind of about all the challenges that we're facing. Perhaps you guys are facing them too. Uh, my name is Jason Titus, and I'm the CTO of Shazam. And uh, we've been, we're, we're also a, a mobile app company. Hopefully some of the folks in the room have, have used our app before. Uh, we have been actually around almost 10 years, so a very old startup company uh, that actually uh, had a real transformation when the smartphone uh, came out, and, and particularly when the iPhone took off, the Shazam's growth uh, took off. So at this point, we have about 80 developers and uh, are growing pretty rapidly in both uh, our offices in London and in Palo Alto, California. So uh, we have some challenges around hiring in multiple places and different skill, skill sets. Uh, I think we had discussed a bit before just, just core platforms for us. We do a lot of work uh, in Java, in uh, sort of HTML5 and, and JavaScript as well. And then on the back end, uh, we were doing more and more work with, with cloud services like Amazon, DynamoDB, and such. So my name is Jatin Parekh. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Jelly. We started up about three and a half years ago where we built a platform that can actually take over the FM airwaves in real time. So you can actually pull, using your iPhone, you can actually pull music off of the airwaves. You can rocket up songs, get attribution when it actually plays on the airwaves. We're currently in about 25 markets now in the United States. We get millions of votes a month from these FM Jelly-enabled stations. Um, our team right now, we have about 17 people, 14 which are on the technical side. Um, and we have a really interesting technology stack in that we use a traditional cloud-based platform. So we use Amazon Web Services and your typical back-end web platform technology stack. But we also have a station component and an appliance that actually sits inside of radio stations. So when they actually take over the airways and flip over the switch that's powering those transmitters, it's being transmitted by one of our, it's actually being created by one of our um, station devices. Um, and I spent about 17 years building up teams, a lot of version 1.0 products, 
Uh, right prior to Jelly, I was recruited by Jeff Bezos to start the Amazon Kindle. So I was the first employee on that project and helped to build up that team over time. So I'm uh, Steve Churchill, Director of Technology and Co-Founder at Sonic Living. And Sonic Living started out at kind of an old startup at this point now, too. It's been around for a while. It started off as a concert destination site. And we transitioned into being an events platform and opened up our API as more of a service-oriented architecture, helping increase engagement on tour listings and concert listings wherever they appear on partner sites and tracking all the data and everything that goes along with that. So we have the, the forward web-facing side. We have a pretty standard LAMP stack set up. There's also a lot of offline asynchronous processing of gathering all this event data, canonicalizing it, and really trying to make an intelligent platform. So we've got a, we've got a team of less than 10 and also utilizing contractors and remote teams to go along with it. So since Jason seems to have a, quite, a, quite a big team here, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the tools that you're using to find um, new people, um, and whether that's recruiters or other tools. I think it's probably most people's experience, but the best way to find new people is to get the people you currently have to actually get refer people. Uh, we've, oh, I've been amazed. You'll frequently find that you get one good hire that then leads to two good hires, four good hires, and more. Uh, and so one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing is how to uh, really make sure that everyone on the team understands uh, that, that that's the case and that we want them to you know, encourage your friends to come and make and make sure that we have an environment that people would actually uh, want to get their friends to come to. And so we check in about a month after we hire anybody and say, hey, you know, are you having a good time? Do you, are you having a good experience here? Uh, and if so, really, you know, are there folks you'd like us to go after? Are the people you want to go talk to? And remember that we have a hiring bonus. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anybody else on the panel like to speak about their interaction with recruiters and some challenges or uh, um, the best way to work them? We definitely do something very similar to what you're saying. You know, we first tap into kind of our network of people we know. Um, uh, one of the things we do is when we create, you know, obviously we start with a great culture um, and make sure that every team member understands that culture very well so they know who's, been a, who's a good fit and who's not a good fit from people that they've worked with in the past. But one of the things that we do is every time we put a job rec out, we bring all the developers together in a room and make sure they understand and agree with the job description. And then before they leave the room, a lot of times we ask them, do you know of anyone that we can actually reach out to right away? So it's, it's a great way to kind of get leads. It's not the only way we hire. We, we use many other tactics. Um, we definitely do use recruiters. Um, we reach out to you know, uh, your standard networks that you would, such as LinkedIn and Facebook. We even mine places like GitHub, for example. Find people who are doing some interesting projects, reach out to them, and we actually made hires that way as well. Um, and then we just kind of bring everything into uh, a good flow. So we have, um, if any of you guys have ever used this or check it out, I highly recommend it. There's a, um, a, a product called Job Score. It's a service, and it's actually a great way to kind of just track the funnel of um, candidates as they come in, whether use their service to post or bring in from other recruiters or other, other ways you can actually enter everyone into the system and just kind of have a great funnel and track where everyone is in, in the hiring phase. Yeah, we, we took a look at a, a product called JobFight, which um, I understand a lot of startups are using. Um, we decided it wasn't the right fit of kind of what we needed, so we track most of our hiring stuff just in Google Docs and a spreadsheet um, I think candidates do really appreciate it if you're kind of timely and you follow up and you don't leave them hanging and no one ever intends to do that, but um, it's challenging when you're trying to juggle a lot of things in the air too. 
Yeah, I'd say it's, it's important to get back to people right away. You know, you always want to be closing. If you, if you feel like you've got someone that's going to be a fit, you know, you should start scheduling things with them immediately and trying to grab their attention because you are competing with other companies. Since uh, mobile technology is obviously a huge part of everybody's platform these days, what are some of the challenges that you all face with um, finding different developers for the different platforms? So finding an iOS developer and an Android developer, even though they're building the same things. So what's, what's your process for trying to find those good jack of all trades and when you go for somebody that's got a very specific skill set? Maybe you can talk a little bit about your experiences. Yeah. Sure, that's, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I think perhaps all of us have some mobile focus to our products nowadays, and um, you'd love to get the maximum amount of code reuse and just kind of your product energy that you put into building something, but um, the needs of an Android device are different than that of an iPhone device. Um, similarly, the needs of the user, um, kind of a, an Android user, an Android customer, has got different expectations about how to interact with an application, where they expect to find things. Um, than an iPhone user would, and you know sometimes the challenge is is on the product side, just um, stepping into the mindset of your user and what he or she expects. But certainly on the the hiring and the staffing side, um, it's quite challenging. Those two platforms, um, developers for Android or iPhone, are probably amongst the um, developers that are highest in demand at the moment, and it is a, a very challenging hiring market. Are you, um, are you guys seeing HTML5 developers kind of coming in to, to try to pick up the slack or try to take a little bit of that um, share away from the Android and iOS developers? Yeah, I would actually say that that's, you know, when you actually when you were saying that the iOS and Android developers are in highest demand, it's it would be a close close run at this point between folks who actually are, are native developers on those platforms and folks who are actually have some experience in doing uh, web web development. Uh, like HTML5 development on phones, uh, and I would recommend if folks are just getting started that you really, really look at uh, going the HTML5 route. For yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah. and the, the reality is that uh, I mean I, I can tell you in recent projects we've had, uh, you know, we have the the I, both both iOS and Android developers saying, ah, oh, it's so much easier to do native. It's so much easier to do native. Let's not bother with all that web stuff. You know, you, look, you can't make it do this kind of whiz bang cool thing. Uh, but then, all of a sudden, when you can have a release go out and say, oh, I wish it was different, and you just change it and it's different, uh, that, that it, I've actually watched the, the conversion happen within the team where now I have both you know, iPhone team and Android team saying, what we need is more web developers. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not saying we need more native developers. And so it, certainly if you're just starting, you, know, you should have a good reason why you want to go native and, and only hire folks of that skill set. I mean, if you're doing something that requires it, you want to do something device integrated, really tight coupling, mm -hmm. you know, with some great new Android device that has, you know, uh, near field communication or something, makes sense. But uh, otherwise, web development is, is a great way. And, and folks can, you know, easily, if they're a current web developer, learning <laughs> the constraints of the mobile device is not all that hard. Um. Matt, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, what you consider a good ideal makeup of a team and how that team changes over time um, throughout the different phases of the project. Yeah, we were, we were chatting a bit backstage. Um, you know, I think the, the needs of a company and a, a startup and a kind of a product really change as the size of your organization grows. 
and um, you know how that affects hiring and staffing is sort of the the type of players you would want to formulate that team with. Um, so I think in the early stages, um, it definitely helps if someone is a generalist and has got sort of prior startup experience. They're going to be having to wear a lot of different hats, even just in the technical realm, and they might need to dive into areas of uh, technology and languages and, and things that they don't have experience with before. Um, and then kind of as as your team grows and the, the product can enjoy more and more specialists come along, um, then you have that opportunity to do sort of a little a little deeper um, quest when you're when you're hiring and looking for folks, someone that really knows this component or really knows that component. And Steve, I know your product kind of changed over time a little bit. How how did that uh, impact the team that you had in place? Did, um, was it a big transition to switch into uh, or to pivot? Uh, right. It, it was it was a little bit different because you know we, we were shifting from a more of a consumer facing focus to more of a, a business facing focus, and really shifting. You know, our product being a destination site to shifting to be, you know, a service-oriented architecture, and there's just kind of a, a little bit of different mindset about how you support things. Um, there, you know, different different types of engineers to, to understand how to integrate with third-party systems, as opposed to just building something that end users can really interact with. So th th there's some different there's some different things there. Yeah. Um, Jakeem, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what. What, what do you consider the ideal candidate as a technical lead, and what qualities are you looking for? Right, right. Well, we, we start with culture always. So making sure that someone's going to be a great fit, uh, making sure they're very excited about the product. And ideally, most of the people, I, I, whenever I start up a new group, a new product, um, I look for people who are going to use the product regularly. So there's people I've hired in the video space that I would not have hired for the Kindle team, for example. People I hired at the Kindle team I would not hire for the music space just because they would not use the product regularly. So I'm always just generally looking for people who are very energetic and willing to try things that haven't been done before. You know, no one's told them, oh, you can't do this. Um, and looking for generalists, usually for the start of a train, uh, team. So I think that's very important. And when you say generalist, is it are you typically a front-end generalist, or, do, or do, are you finding it, yourself It depends back on it? the product. I generally look for just really strong software engineers. They okay. don't get hung up on whether they're coding in C, whether they're coding in Java, mm -hmm. whether they're working on the data tier, or they're working on an application. They feel comfortable being able to pick up about anything, at least for a start of a team. Yeah, I, th I think that's really, uh, I mean, if you can get somebody who's passionate about the product, and they're smart, like, it's not about what their skill set is exactly. If they can learn new things, and they, if you throw, you sit down and go, everyone agrees that this, there's amazing new feature you want to build in, but guess what? You have to work with the built-in integrated database, and that's not, you know, it doesn't use SQL, or, or it does, and you don't know it, and you have to learn it. Like, uh, I can remember one of the one of the most successful things that, that, it was, that was a surprise turnaround for me was where I had a really strong engineer on my team who had been doing just front-end stuff for a long time, and we had a bunch of database work to do and not enough people who knew it. And he's like, I want to help. I'm like, you, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would love to have you help, but you really don't know how databases work. <laughs> and it was like a Friday. And, uh, and on Monday morning, when I came in, he had just absolutely kick-ass demo saying, like, it's all, all the work on the back end. Like, he sat down with books and just figured it out. And from that point on, knew that stuff well. And it's because he cared about, well, it's two factors. He cared about the product, and I told him that he couldn't do it. Right. <laughs> Both are valuable things. Right. Speaking of culture and, that, and how that's such a big part of it, um, 
how do you monitor the employee's happiness once they're immersed in this culture? And, and how do you know that you actually have a culture? <laughs> Maybe it's a great question. Yeah, I mean, you know, culture is really, you can't really manufacture culture, obviously. So it's something you can't really force down. That's why it's so critical with your early team to make sure you bring on people that you think fits your culture. Because at the end of the day, you're going to hire more people, hopefully, that also match that same culture. If you start off on the wrong foot, um, it's very difficult to correct that. Sometimes you just have to completely swap out a team to actually get the right culture going. Um, but we do it in a number of different ways. Obviously, we try and build you know, a fun environment, which I'm sure everyone does, especially at startups. You really have to have a, a product that people are really passionate about and are having fun working on. Um, but then we also, over time, make sure that people feel like they're owners of a certain feature or a certain part of the platform. Um, whether it's an application, you know, they may, they may be very passionate about some social aspect of your application. We make sure that they're the leads and they actually own it and they can be contributors, key contributors to mm -hmm. the roadmap of that particular feature, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to keep the engineers involved in the product process and and getting their input. So you know they know what's coming and they don't feel like it's something that's just being thrown at them. You know they've had some input. That you've got the team on board and really everyone has agreed this is what we're going to work on, and this is how it's going to go. I think that that puts a lot more ownership into into the team and helps build that culture of doing it correctly. And there's also yeah getting the getting the product right and then also getting people that are passionate about the process. And you know, not just building it and shipping it, but really having something that you can iterate on and building a culture of change, where you're, you're constantly reviewing what's going on. You know, how, what did we estimate? What actually came out of this? And what you know, what did and didn't work? Yeah, I think it's it's important to note that those kinds of issues, like the cultural problems, are the ones that uh, people know immediately when they come in. When, a when they come into a company, or often even when they're interviewing. Mm -hmm. If you have created a culture where the developers feel like what they build doesn't matter or what their, what their inputs or thoughts are, are not, aren't really paid attention to, that is the kind of stuff that comes out pretty quickly when somebody's in a room with somebody for 45 minutes interviewing, and at some point they're like, so do you like your job, or do you like being here? Or, you know, what is, what is the thing that bothers you most? Like, the reality is that stuff comes out. And, and so, you ha if, if you've built an environment where folks feel like what, what their opinions don't matter, you're not gonna be able to bring in good talent, because people, people see that and they flee it where the people who don't aren't the ones you want to hire. <laughs> right. And I think one thing that's important with a technical team is, you know, the d development tools, obviously, I think we're all probably talking about the same thing here, but the development environment is obviously a big deal. I had a couple of uh, young engineers that joined on board um, on the mobile side, and they were, the, the thing they were most excited about was on the first day of the job, they were able to fix their first bug, do a build, and it actually worked. And we want to do something similar on the website as well, where we can have developers join us and on the first day maybe build a feature, a service, or some part that they could actually produce and put into production that day. And so that's a, that's a big part of the culture, I think, at least on the technical side that engineers appreciate. Yeah, I would say it's, it's a pretty interesting time, just kind of the um, cross-company culture of being an engineer has evolved a lot in the last 10 years. Um, you see like an emphasis on social coding and um, I think GitHub has kind of emerged as both um, like a leading place to host an open source project, but they've also kind of emerged as leaders and in innovating on the development processes that different companies use. Um, they've got a bunch of really great slides that um, they present at, at talks and conferences. Um, one of the, the features that they have um, 
allows for kind of an old concept, which is a code review, where different engineers would take a look at someone else's code and, you know, comment on how horrible it is or how they would have done it different and, you know, how their preferences are better. But um, they've kind of given it new life in one of their features that they call pull requests. And that's something that members of our technical team, they were really excited about. They're like, hey, we, we read about this cool way that GitHub does their development process and we want to give it a shot. Um, so it's been interesting to be in kind of like the coordinating managing role and um, kind of getting this like, I guess, real passion about the process start to bubble up um, from your team, which makes you feel really good about it. Um, you know, it's like not only are your teammates passionate about the product, but about, you know, the steps that we all go through and working together to build it. So Jason, with the, with the larger team that you have in place, how important is mentorship and kind of teaching people so that you can have people grow within the company as opposed to trying to always hire the best person? I think, I think it's, it's huge and, and I've, I've seen it work well and, and not so well. I, I think the key things are finding people who actually enjoy being in that role and, and being able to recognize who are the folks who can actually offer uh, new hires or interns or you know, recent college hires. Like there, there are folks who actually really enjoy mentoring. And mm -hmm. if you can set, get, a, get that in place uh, so that every time you bring somebody new, there's somebody who's going to sort of buddy up with them, uh, mm -hmm. it actually makes a big difference. And, and one of the things we're doing on a couple teams now is actually just doing pair programming. And that uh, is, is something where very quickly people come in and get up to speed on how things work. And, and, and you, you also quickly find out that you, you're getting a much faster feedback loop on whether folks, folks are strong. You really want to know if somebody comes in the door and they're a new member of the team, if they're not going to perform well, you want to know that quickly. And something like pair programming makes it so whoever's in the pair can either say, oh my god, this person's awesome, they've immediately helped me learn things, or they can say, it seems like everything we come across this person has a hard time with. Mm -hmm. uh, and both, both messages are really important. Have, has anybody else um, experimented with pair programming? Anybody else on the panel? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a really effective way to onboard engineers to, to get them in. You know, you can you can give them a bug where you may not necessarily know where in the stack it's coming from. Get a senior engineer with them and, and say, like, you know, here's the debugging process. Here's the complexities that you're going to have to address. And here at a high level is kind of what you're looking at. You know, once you identify the problem, you can see how that engineer is working and thinking about it and really what their problem solving process is. It can even be a useful part of the interview, you know, if you've, if you've got some little task, you know, open a browser and start debugging and do some live coding together. It, it's, it's informative. Definitely. Um, what are some uh, of the mentor kind of programs that you implement at your company? Um, you know, I think, I think we're still evolving a lot of the, the mentorship that we do. We're, we're looking forward to the day where um, I have at least two engineers, um, I guess, familiar with any one piece of technology <laughs> so, that, so that we can get some uh, pair programming done. But, um, you know, one, one of the things that I, I guess necessity begs is that, um, you know, we all do a bit of like cross training and, you know, the, the client guys that, you know, they know how to build an iPhone app, like the back of their hand, um, might not have it, have as had much background, um, like in, in their experience with building the back end web server. But, um, you know, the ins and outs of what makes API tick very much impacts um, their ability to do work. So it's, it's nice when there's kind of this, um, I don't know, I guess a feeling of like, you know, we're, we're all colleagues and we have different specialties. Um, 
And so kind of the sort of free exchange of ideas across the different technologies happens a lot. You know, I think over lunch and kind of like the water cooler conversations, mm -hmm. going out for drinks after work, stuff like that. You know, one thing that, that comes across both for the, the culture piece as well as kind of cross uh, group interaction is we do something where we have, we call it a demo day, which is just everybody's got 15% of their time to work on whatever they think is cool. Uh, that's somewhat related to the company, and then every every couple months we actually have something where the whole company comes together, and every, and these guys get to stand up and show what they've done, and uh, and because of that you get you know we I think two times ago we actually had somebody who was on their fourth day at the company, who blew everybody away, like it was just it was uh, you know a great way for everybody to get excited in the company actually like wow, it's so great to have new people coming in. Do you see what that new guy just did? Uh, as well as it then sort of prompted people to say, wow, we really, and it happened to be a web thing, and so it, it sort of helped along the, uh, you know, wow, we really need to get more web devs in. If we could, if we had more web developers, we could do all these new things. And then people started saying, well, there was this, this other person I used to work with in another company. We should, maybe I'll give them a call and see if they want to come over. How often do those uh, demos turn into real products? Actually, uh, you know, it's one of the nice things. I used to be at Yahoo, and we're a big, huge company, and sometimes slow moving. Uh, being at Shazam is, is somewhat different, and so I can say we had a number of things uh, that are in the current product that came out of demo days, and uh, and that's definitely been a good thing on both retention and recruiting, where we could say, you know, can you have an impact? Yes, you know, this this guy, this guy had this idea, and you know, last month, and now it's in the product. As well as I think uh, we we chatted a little bit before the. Uh, for the panel about uh, be getting people to have a chance to see the efforts, the results of their efforts. Mm -hmm. So you know, release early, release often. Right. If people, if when folks you know are interviewing, if you can say we just you know we just finished, we just shipped the new version last week. We've got another new version coming out two weeks from now. Uh, here's what's going to be in it. Everyone who they interview, they go, what do you do? I, I just did this thing and that new product. Did you have you seen it? Like it actually creates this cycle mm -hmm. that gets excitement and gets people feeling. Like there, you know, there's momentum. Whereas if we're, if if it's a, we're gonna build something for six months or eight months and then we'll release it and see how it goes, uh, it gives people a lot of time to get down and feel beaten down and like they haven't been able to make a difference and that yeah. shows. No, I think uh, we do something very similar. What we do actually every week we try and show off, highlight someone's work. You know, it seems like now that we have effectively three user-facing products between our website, iPhone, and Android, each week there's something cool coming out. Um, I don't know, we probably reserve maybe about 10 to 15% of devs' times, um, developers' times, to play on their own. A lot of times they just go home on a weekend and they'll say, oh, there's a better way to do this, or I'd like to reformat you know, this type of code, or I'd like to add this particular feature for the next, for the next Friday demo. And we tend to do that pretty often, and I would say probably about 10 to 20 percent of that stuff actually does make it in. Great. St Steve, you talked a lot about um, before the panel where we were talking about how the decision-making process, how important that is to involve everyone. Um, what are some tools that you implement early on in the, the design phases or the user experience definition phases? How do you bring in your development team into those early stages to, to make them feel part of the whole product? Right. So, I mean, you, know, you start with your, your business goals and what, what you'd like to accomplish kind of at a high level. And then, <coughs> sorry, and then you, you go into a, address that, you know, as a team 
to look at you know what what are the possible solutions and try and figure out how you're going to tackle that and really get input from everyone and make sure that the engineers know what the business goals are as they're building it you know th and that that's part of making them feel like they're they're actual contributors mm -hmm. um, yeah um, if maybe if each person could touch on just a little bit about how often you're using contractors or outsourcing to small agencies, just augmenting your staff. How, when you hit a wall, when do you, when do you decide to pull the trigger and outsource versus, all right, we got to hire this person. We need to hire. Yeah, maybe. I could just start quickly. Okay. Um, you know, we, we have yet to do any outsourcing per se, uh, working with agencies. We, we try to build everything in house. Um, you know, I think it's, it's ideal in, in some sense to, to build up your core team and kind of keep knowledge in-house, but the, the reality of today is um, that could be a very viable option. We have worked with contractors remotely, and um, you know, of course, kind of syncing up schedules is always a bit of a challenge. But And there's, there's some additional overhead to doing that, too. I mean, you know, a lot of times you have to clearly define the requirements when you're working with a remote team. And you know, you also do want to find something that's decoupled and not part of your core knowledge. You can say, hey, build this piece and this is how it's going to integrate and really have a plan even if they don't make the target. Like, here's how, you know, it will get fit in properly again. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, just with the pace of things that we're trying to do, have, we'll, we'll spin up teams that are spin up contractors or, uh, you know, other groups that we work with and partner on. And it, it always has to be, like, the, the our biggest, challenge is saying, okay, how do we break down the dependencies so that we can actually have somebody be able to pick up a discrete piece and build that and get it going uh, without having to constantly be on the phone and be going back and forth with the teams. And I think there's, you know, if you're going to go down that path, you either have to be able to really clearly define things or uh, have a, a freestanding enough components that you can say the separate team without total knowledge of how our stuff works can get something built. And yeah, you have to, you know, ideally those are things that if it didn't happen, the company doesn't fail. Right. I, I would say almost always it's better to hire, but it's also the reality is that sometimes it takes a little while, a little while to hire. Right. I totally agree with Jason on that. I mean, generally if it's anything that's core to our platform or our future, we want to do it in-house generally. There are times where there may be one-off things, maybe UI or graphics design that we're a little more comfortable handing that out and having other people externally um, do that for us. But if it's a core part of our service, we want to generally be in control of it and we try and hire people internally for that. Makes sense. Um, with the advent of a lot of cloud computing and, and Amazon services, Rackspace, content delivery networks all over the place, how has that changed the, the makeup of your teams um, from, I guess, the system administrators and DBAs do you have less of them? Do you have? Do you finding it's the same? What's different? Uh, yeah, I think I think for us, um, you know, nowadays um, there's this, I guess, a new role that it's emerged, uh, the DevOps engineer, which is like kind of bridging the bit of an old school sysadmin um, DBA as well as like a developer familiar with um, you know, languages closer to, I guess, the application layer, and um, yeah, I, I think what a lot of startups do is kind of like scrape by with uh, I guess the skills you have in, in your tool set um, and I think the evolution of the cloud has has made it I guess easier to scrape by with less of the tools that you know we probably all, all came up with and relied heavily upon um, you know just knowledge of like 
Unix on Excel and setting up web servers and databases and search engines and what to do when shit goes down. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, that, that game has changed. I think it's, it's a fundamental change. Like if you are starting something right now, you can not have whole functions that you would have had to have before. And that uh, makes a huge difference. It, it means that you can hire folks who are going to build code and make things work and have to spend less time hiring, managing, training, uh, the whole thing for, for folks who are just going to run big chunks of your infrastructure. Um, and I think especially for startups, that has an acceleration factor that's really hard to I mean, if you haven't if you haven't seen what it was before, it's hard to appreciate. But it, it makes a big difference, and and sometimes it uh, the times when it will make the bi the biggest difference is probably like six months in, eight months in, if you're successful. I mean, maybe it's probably roughly equivalent if you were going to fail because you, you were never going to hit that. <laughs> but but having being able to say, oh, I need more, yeah, and all of a sudden there's more as opposed to oh my god, get somebody out to the data center and racking new things and wiring yeah. it. Hope they wire it, it right while things are going really, really badly. So it's it's a it's a new new era. Yeah, I would I would I totally agree with that. I mean, if any company is starting today, uh, it's crazy not to use something like Amazon, and not just because I was there, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, but they just have not been standing still. It just seems like every month they just keep coming out with the coolest features. Whether you want to do a Facebook app, you want to do an Android app, you want to scale your database, load balancers. It's just absolutely amazing how much, how quickly they're moving and keeping up with, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of startups. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's lowered the barrier to entry a lot too. You know, you're, you are now able to just start with a few developers and say, go build on this stack. You don't actually need a RAID expert and have to worry about hardware failure. There's still some things, you, you know, like business continuity and disaster recovery plans that can't be forgotten. But, you know, it definitely has changed a lot as far as the team makeup. Um, you're, you guys are in a highly competitive area um, with, there's a, a lot of developers out there. Um, they seem to be getting recruited all the time. Um, how are you finding developers outside of the city or in other locations and how are you going about convincing them to, to come to you? Yeah, I think recruiters definitely help with that problem. Um, I think conferences and talks and, and being able to travel and interact with uh, both users of your product and people in the same space that are kind of trying out things on their own um, is a great way to do it. Um, we actually will will go through GitHub projects and kind of people's sort of side pet projects that they'll put online. And it, it's a great way to learn about somebody's, you know, how they spend their time, what do they think is interesting. You get a little peek at their code, like how organized are they? Um, just some of the things that uh, we try to do. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for finding folks who ideally who love your product. I mean, if, if, if you can actually find people who care about your product or get the, get the word out to people uh, about what you're doing, then it, it's a, it, you know, to your point about getting people into a particular location, like the Bay Area, where uh, we're actually headquartered in London, and so getting people to come to West London versus East London, it, it's a lot to do with uh, making, getting people to even know that you're there, and then also look a little broader. It, you really, you know, in the, it's a big country. It's a big world. There's, there's, you know, while the, it's very, very competitive right here, you could very likely find somebody who's in Seattle or in, you know, and any of a number of cities on the East Coast who could be technically brilliant, uh, but not have a whole lot of opportunities. And if you can connect with them, 
uh, either by conferences or by presentations. I mean, there's a lot of people who are learning things on the web, and if you can show off that you're doing cool things technically, uh, people want to come come work with you. Yeah. And we found something somewhat ironically. Sometimes it's easier for us to hire from Southern California and New York than it is from San Francisco, even though we're <laughs> located in San Mateo. So, uh, so one of the things that's really helped us is finding people who've been passionate about hearing about our service and our product. You know, we have people who hear us in Vegas, and you know, they used to work for Google, they moved to Vegas, and now they're thinking, ah, I'm going to move back maybe to work for, for you guys. So finding people who are passionate about what you're doing, obviously being having the technical chops, uh, it's amazing how many people are willing to relocate to the Bay Area. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's, a, it's a, something that shouldn't be ignored. You should be posting all over the place. And you know, even people that are happy with their job but live somewhere else, you say, hey, you're technically competent, you're experienced. You know, it, you think about your recruiter cost, the cost to relocate an engineer is comparable or even less. So it's mm -hmm. to be considered. Gotcha. So speaking of recruiters, how much, how much time do you guys spend being the recruiter um, <laughs> as opposed to doing your, probably what you should be doing all the, yeah. Or, yeah. How much time of your day is spent on that? I think in some sense recruiting is like fundraising, which is like once you stop, you never really stop. <laughs> if, I, if I said that right. Um, but I, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like it approaches near near 50% of yeah. uh, your mind share, just always kind of thinking about how to improve the composition of the team, um, improve your pitch, reach out there, find people. I think it has a lot to do with being consistent. Uh, so I would say even it's always at least it's always at least ten percent and frequently twenty percent, but it never drops less than that. Like mm -hmm. if I'm if I'm at a conference or if I'm you know meeting meeting folks at a bar, like I will always at least be thinking about hey, are there people who who would be potentially good to to come to the company? Uh, and that's I think one of the things people sometimes do is that they pause, they hire, mm -hmm. hire okay, I don't need to hire anybody anymore, and then. By doing, and then next time you have to hire again, all of a sudden you have to get Start back into the again. thing. And, and across the teams, that can actually, and it's, it's pretty disruptive. Where if you just say, hey, guess what, everybody, you're always going to do a couple phone screens every week. Just always. Just get that. That's going to be, and maybe you rotate through who does it, but everybody just knows that part of your job is to help hire. And by doing that, everybody keeps in practice, and actually your system for tracking it and making sure you're getting better <laughs> at it is always happening. I was probably spending about 40 to 50% of my time just consistently in recruiting mode, either phone screening, interviewing, recruiting, posting. And I also generally went through every resume first. So every resume we got, you know, I did the first over and then decided who on the team would take it next or if I was going to do the uh, phone screening myself. Um, but now I've, we've got enough training inside of the company where I have a couple of other leads who help out, but I'm still probably spending about 20% of my time. And like you mentioned, it never stops. I'm always looking for good people because you just never know when you're going to need the right person. Um, and we just don't stop. We just constantly keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm spending, you know, probably 20 to 30 easy on, on that. And, you know, it's kind of different being your own recruiter, too, because you're aware of your team's needs and the challenges there. And when you're working with an external recruiter, it's just like any other external thing. You have to communicate them the requirements. And then when they're changing, you're like, actually, you know, the team shifted and the right. priorities are such that I need something slightly different now. And that's part of why asking for generalists is usually great, because the recruiters can bring back in someone that you might be able to place in a multitude of areas and figuring out what that spot is. So on the flip side of that, it, you know, it's one thing to go find all these good people. Um, what do you do to make your team happy and to keep the, the your rock stars, keep them there? Um, 
maybe if you could each touch on on that a little bit and how do you promote the rock stars basically yeah that, that's a great question and I, I think um, it's important to take a step back and kind of look at what you're doing and, and how you can improve it along the way um, I think we we've tried to step up our our game in the, the kind of like perks department okay. um, recently just in light of what a lot of other companies are doing in the valley in the city um, so you know we we definitely let new employees know that they get their pick a computer, if, if they don't yet have an iPhone or an Android device and they want one, we'll, we'll set them up. Um, it's important everyone can, can work with the product for sure. Um, we also have a, a stipend um, for our employees to go out to shows or concerts. Um, I think like gym stipends are pretty common as well. Um, always trying to just, I know, kind of come up with ways that like fit in with our company's culture, um, but that, you know, can help define us against many of the other companies that we're, we're competing with on the hiring market. I think you want to you want to find um, you know kind of kind of find your voice like your company's voice and then hope that that resonates with candidates that will want to come work with you. I, I think the most important thing for actually keeping really rock star developers engaged is keep them buried. <laughs> like in actually you know there has to be difficult problems. If you stop giving your really, really talented people difficult problems to solve, then they lose interest. I mean, I'm not saying always buried, but, but something, is, there has to be, where I've, seen, uh, where I've seen good people leave a company, like, real, like the top people leave a company, is when they didn't have something that they were interested in to work on. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, where, when there's a pause, get a big project out the door, everybody, <sighs> I have a minute to look around. Maybe I'll go do something else. Whereas if, if as soon as you finish something, say, hey, here's a demo day thing you can work on or whatever, you know, everybody says this is impossible. Could you see if that's possible? And nine times out of ten, they prove everyone wrong. That's why they're rock stars. Right. I think uh, with, with our team, you know, we really focus on making sure that everyone understands kind of where they fit in in the organization and they're working on something that's needle moving. You know, a lot of times, you know, engineers can still work on difficult problems, but if they don't feel like they're really making an impact, you know, to the product or to the company, they can get discouraged, and that can only go on for so long. Um, so one of the things we try and do is, you know, meet very regularly. I meet with the entire technical team just regularly, even if it's coffee or lunches, just making sure that they're excited about what they're working on and they understand, because sometimes they do have their heads down and they don't realize what the bit, what's going on in the business. So making sure they understand kind of how they fit in with the business and how they're making an impact. Mm -hmm. And that's generally really worked out very well. We found some of our rock stars just, you know, it's cool working on the back end, but I kind of want to maybe do an Android app. It's like, okay, why don't you leave the Android app team great. and jump on that next? And so that's been a great way to retain people. Yeah, I think, I think engineers want to work on a variety of problems. They all, they all want to challenge. And to, to have them making, making sure that they're communicating with each other, even if they're not working on the same projects, just to be aware of other people's technical challenges. Maybe someone read another article that they can just pass over. They're like, hey, this will help you with your problem. I don't have time. And giving them ownership of what they're working on, too. So, so J Jason, you mentioned keeping them challenged and buried somewhat. <laughs> um, how do you balance? burying somebody and, and burning them out. Yeah, I, I, so I, I should be careful how I say that. Because <laughs> remember, what I was saying before is releasing early and often, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that you have so much work to do that you can, you know, you never get to see the sunlight because you're working on this thing forever. Uh, I think part of it is saying that there are uh, periodic times when you can actually uh, 
see see the things that you've worked on released and and know and being a, any good manager is going to be able to see when when does somebody move from the I'm working really hard to the I'm actually ragged around the edges and starting to uh, you know not like my job and you need you need to be able to say you know at this I, I, really I'm talking mostly about a certain category of engineers not not everybody but there's a category of engineers who who are ultra intense and work really hard and when you recognize that you have to say you know do that, work hard, and then when, when the time has come, get out of here. Right. Like, mm -hmm. go far away, I'm taking your phone, you don't get to, you know, interact with other things. Sometimes they bring a laptop and come back with a cool new, whole new feature they built, but, but the, the message is, like, go relax. And I think as long as you are, are attentive to that, and you don't abuse the, the opportunity you have in having, you know, amazing engineers, I think you get amazing throughput, and you also get people who are happy with what they do. Well, we're at the 15-minute mark, so I thought we could open it up to some questions. And uh, wait for the mic. Uh, so, I have a question, and I don't know if any of you have uh, experienced this firsthand, but uh, maybe you've seen it or you've been the lead dev. But how do you do? You have any advice for people going from the the prime motivator, like you pretty much own the entire code base, and now all of a sudden you have to figure out how to distribute it among end people. Um, like what's, what's, what, what can go right? <laughs> Steve, that might be an interesting one for you. So maybe a little bit of a smaller team where you probably do have a lot of people who they own a lot of code. Right, well, we actually started out with a, a lot of code though and brought people on and, and tried to shift how are you using it. And you know, there was a lot of knowledge just in, in a few heads and trying to figure out what are all these roles that everyone's playing and, and how to develop. It is, it is challenging. Figuring, figuring out your priorities and, and trying to break out the work into, into pieces is good. I mean, really, I mean, there, you know, there's, there's the smart method, there's the, uh, what is it? Uh, specific, measurable, actionable, yeah, actionable, um, relevant, and uh, time constrained. So you know, just trying to figure out like here, here's like my definition of block. But it, it, it is challenging because you know even even when you've got a few people, the, there's some processes that you may not even be aware is going on. Like oh, you've been doing QA and release mm -hmm. management. Like right. there's there are there are some challenges there. And, and I think just trying to break off the work, maybe starting over in a few places, doing a little bit of refactoring, like here's this mess, yeah. please build it correct and document it, and you know, here we'll work from there. Yeah, we did, we, we had to go through somewhat growing pains, and I think they're kind of standard growing pains where you have a few people who did all of the code, and in the back of their mind, they even put comments like, this is terrible code, I can't wait for someone to re <laughs> rewrite it, yeah. please do. Uh, and they were generally very happy about handing over a code to other people and giving them the right guidance of how to refactor it, what needs to kind of be redone, and what we've learned since. Um, so I think if you have a good team, you know, they understand how to kind of divide up the work. And I haven't, I haven't had too many cases where people have complained that they're kind of, you know, giving away, you know, part of, you know, their, their baby, basically. I think the key, the key thing with that piece of people giving something away is make sure that you're giving something to uh, the the person who's giving things away, right? If if the if the answer is you're the person who wrote this whole thing and so you can stand by and oversee everybody who rework it, like that's probably not going to be the most enjoyable experience. If it's like yeah. here's a big new thing that we're going to work on, you're the lead on that, you drive that forward and help these people who will be coming in to you know 
take over maintenance of different chunks. And yes, there's going to be six people who used to work on the thing that you mostly owned yourself. And you know, so you, they'll look to you for guidance, but you're on to the next thing. I think that the, the time I, I have seen it go very badly. And, and it's almost, it seems to be the most common theme is that the person who used to own it doesn't, they feel like they're not important anymore. And, and you just have to recognize that that's entirely valid and you got to give them something important to do. All right, uh, very interesting talking points. So you mentioned uh, different things like code reviews or bug tracking or release management. Uh, and one thing that keeps developers really happy, in my experience, is keeping the process super lean and transparent. So I'm really curious to know what kind of tools you use to make it easier for the developers and not harder. You want to try that one? Yeah. yeah, sure. Um, we chatted a bit about some of the tools that we all use backstage, too. Um, so currently at Schematic Labs, we're, we're using Basecamp and Pivotal Tracker. Um, I wouldn't say that combination is solving all of our problems, but <laughs> um, it seems like we, you know, we also use a fair amount of Google Documents and, um, as I mentioned before, GitHub pull requests. So it's it's kind of, you know, it, I don't know. It hints that maybe we don't have the problem solved; that we have almost as many tools as developers. <laughs> but um, I think the biggest challenge with Toolset is really just getting buy-in. Like you need to come up with a solution that the people on your team will actually use. And some people need a little more constant reminder. Um, I think it's like the highest level, like tools are the lowest the lowest level piece. Above that's process, and above that's actually the culture and focus of the organization. And it's, my experience has been that it, the problems are usually up here, not down here. Mm -hmm. um, and that could be because most of the tools suck. Uh, and, and definitely, I think everybody, when we were talking about it, does not feel like they have tools that solve the problem completely. Uh, we use Jira. Uh, when I was at Yahoo, we used Bugzilla. Um, actually, there's a whole bunch of different Agile tools uh, Yahoo. I, I don't think any of them really made the situation dramatically better. But they, you know, if, if the, what I have seen is that the teams who are very clear on what we're going to do is deliver this in this time frame, usually sort of a scrum methodology or something like that where there's increments, you, you sprint, you go, you get to see the result of what you do, uh, and you use some tool for tracking what's going on. Uh, and as long as at the high level you're saying what we're going to do is build products and, and get them out the door and they're going to be great, and that's what we, we're about. Yeah, the tools, you know, if you were using an Excel spreadsheet that would probably be more difficult. Uh, <laughs> But I don't think that the tools themselves solve the problem. It's it's the higher level stuff. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, uh, regardless of what tool you choose, in our case, we're using Jira. Just making sure you set it up the right way um, so it fits in your process properly, I think, is really critical. And once once we did that, actually, we even found that even beyond the developers, we found even product people, um, and in some cases, even sales and biz dev folks who were jumping in using the exact same tool as our kind of standard set. So whether it was a bug a feature or even a feature request, for example, which can come from anyone, people started using the same tool set, which was really nice. Yeah, I think consolidating the communication flow, I mean, it not, it's not so much about what tools you have, but the process, making sure that everyone knows where they should be putting their inputs and their requests and where the outputs of the system are coming. And I think, you know, a big part of it too is we talked about this water cooler chat and information sharing. And that's something that you want to capture. So we're, we, you know, we're using a combination of 
MediaWiki and also IRC to grab those things as they happen throughout the day, just so everyone can have awareness and a log. You can see, oh look, someone actually made a really important decision back there that we didn't hear about. And you know, also Google Docs has been great too. You don't have to have a file server and all that kind of administration. Um, so we're using that as well as Asana for task management and uh, tracking the projects there. And that allows the individual stakeholders in the tasks and the projects to you know, get email threads, put it on their calendar, have visibility, and really see what's going on. Hi, uh, Eric Whitman from Songbird. Um, generally, scar tissue is thicker than real skin. Uh, and I generally don't like to create my own scar tissue. So are there any near catastrophic experiences that you guys have had in building teams that you can sort of share with us to make sure we don't repeat that? Well, that's a good question. Anyone want to air their <laughs> laundry? Those memories have all been very deep. I, uh, I, w I would say we had one here at, at Jelly, actually, where uh, my entire career has been starting up just new concepts and new ideas. So there isn't an existing product that we're just building. It's just something from scratch. Generally disruptive, even though I hate using that term. But uh, starting with an engineering team. In the case of Jelly, we actually decided to try something different and start a little more with a product team, which, uh, as we learned very quickly, just did not work very well, at least in our early stages. So if we were to do something different, we would probably start with an engineering team first to kind of get the, fir the first version of the product out um, before starting with kind of a product team and driving the engineers as to what they should do. They just felt like they had no ownership and no direction over the product initially. I, I can think of a, you know, I will not say which company I worked at, but, I, but I, I, there was uh, one place I worked where the someone had, I came into a, a team that had been built with just the philosophy of, hire really brilliant people, which is a good philosophy, but not if it's in a vacuum. So if you just hire brilliant people with no other criteria, um, like can they, do they like interacting with other people? Are they able to, you know, play nicely with others? Uh, you can end up with a team, and in this case of, of brilliant people who just, uh, you know, we're all generally moving in opposite directions, so while maybe progress was made, the end result was nothing. Uh, and, and it was really, it took a fair amount of effort to kind of unwind that and just, I mean, in the end, the same group of people ended up being very productive, um, but none of them, when they were hired, were told, for example, that they would need to work with other people or give, be given <laughs> guidance as to where what they should work on, and, and that's hard to unwind once people are in the door. You know, one more thing that just comes to mind is uh, I'm sure all of us have done desperation hires in the past. and. <laughs> That's always painful. As many times as I've done it, and I have probably done it more times than I wish, uh, I always remind myself, like, I can't believe I did this again. Um, so sometimes you just need bodies and you feel like you're just hiring people, uh, and then you've got to deal with it later. So that's something I just have to keep reminding myself not to do. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a, uh, a particular um, story to share, but um, you know, it is important just to, to do the basics. And I think sometimes we get so excited about hiring or it's so challenging. like. Um, you know, you might leave out something important like checking references, and um, that's a real important one. <laughs> and sometimes it's like a game of like, oh, I thought you were going to check the reference, and you know, it's not necessarily the funnest uh, conversation to have. But um, like, open up your ears and listen. I, I think a lot of folks, um, you know, the the notion is like you should you should be like polite and professional when you're providing a reference for someone, but sometimes. I don't know, you, you can kind of sense that like this person's trying to tell me that maybe it's not a good person to hire and um, I would say trust your instincts on that. Yeah, I think that, that bit of subtlety is really, really important. 
Uh, it's the same thing on, on interview feedback. You know, the, if you have a, a group of people interview somebody and a couple of them come back saying, yeah, technically competent, yeah, 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 really, yeah, I think, yeah, I, yeah, you know, if you think we should hire them, yeah, I guess we can hire them. You know, yeah, if you, you have to be good at recognizing these signs that, like, eh, I think this person might not be so cool. But, yeah, I guess they meet our, they, they met that job spec. I guess they meet that job spec. And, and the reality is those, those are the ones that make your life the most miserable down the way, where it's like, yes, by most criteria, this person is good, except for that no one who works with them likes them, or, you know, they have fits of rage, or it turns out, you know, they steal from the company. I mean, those are the kinds yeah. of things that you only find out through really small telltale signs. Right. Every, every, every psychotic killer's neighbor says they're wonderful, right? Yeah. <laughs> this guy in the green. Oh, okay, good. All right, so we have a couple more questions here. Hi, thanks. So um, let's say you had a product that was uh, created by a very, very small dev team, and it was promising enough, and you had a clear enough roadmap that, let's say, you got funded. And <clears throat> you could double or triple the size of your dev team. How would you go about figuring out what roles needed to be filled. This is a strictly hypothetical question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, actually, and I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, I'd, I'd start from kind of trying to analyze your pain points, mm -hmm. like, um, and then you know, really maybe have like a heart to heart with all the core senior members of the team and ask them what their pain points are. And, um, cause they're, you know, they're kind of like on the ground fighting the fight on the, on the front lines and they might be aware of things that they typically like shield you from the gory details, um, you know, out of, uh, courtesy. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be a good place to start. As well as if you know the roadmap, you might get a sense already, like it, to tripling a, a team has a lot of potential inefficiencies. And so you should understand what are the things that you want to do that are new and that don't, that don't interact too much with the things you're currently doing. And, and in your mind, start going, okay, what are the things that could be done in parallel? And how could you start doing those things? Because you can hire quickly into those areas, but trying to sort of tease apart things that are already in existence and jam new people into that can be painful. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's a certain element of like building you know, the A-team or whatever, you get like, you need an explosive specialist and you need like, you know, cer certain roles that might be kind of important. Probably not that role, but you know, the, but you might, you might say you really need somebody who's good at analytics, for example, yeah. and that is a kind, that is, there's, there are certain people who are good at those sorts of things. And you go, great, we got funding, I can get somebody who understands Hadoop and knows how to do those things and you probably run that on Amazon so you don't have to get all the associated headache of managing it. <laughs> but you know, you just start coming up with roles like that that are going to be vital for you. We have time for one more. It was actually a very similar question, so I'll try to <laughs> specialize it. Uh, building a complex web app with clients in a browser, on iPhone, on Android. I'm trying to set up a team. Are there any particular skills or skill sets that you would recommend not to have in-house? For example, design or the look of things or are there any things that, or would you recommend having the entire team in-house? I have to put a bill for investors. <laughs> 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 
Well, I think I think one thing you should look at is you know are the roles really full time? You may find that if your app is pretty simple, for example, on mobile, uh, you may not need a full time graphic designer, for example, or UI UX person. So that's a great opportunity to actually uh, um, find someone externally, a contractor, or outsource it somehow. Um, but core, again, going back to kind of the core platform, you know, your backend platform that's serving up maybe all of these client apps is something you probably should have internally. I would, I would caveat that, though, with saying design, I would say these days, design is more tightly coupled with development than it has ever been. And so I would be a bit careful on fully outsourcing design. Like the, the teams that move the fastest that I've seen have essentially a designer sitting in amongst them. So when the developer's like, I, it doesn't work quite like that. The way you laid it out, that's not, oh, okay, boom. And you, get, you take that iteration cycle from a developer being blocked for a day to being resolved in a few minutes. And, and you can do that with contractors. If it's a contractor who's like <laughs> gonna be with you for a while, who everybody likes, who kind of would mm -hmm. like to eventually work for the company, that can work, but probably not like agency that does something for you and then gives it to you and then moves away mm -hmm. because that's not gonna do you well. Yeah, to, to that point, I think something that um, might not be clear at first glance to a lot of people, like there's different styles of designers there's designers that are great artists and they're really good at visual designs. They can make a beautiful mock-up. And then there's designers that um, think a little differently and sometimes they're called like UX, user experience specialists or interactive designers. And um, those are the ones that can sometimes make the lives easier for a developer trying to figure it out. Um, so maybe kind of keep that in mind too when you're evaluating who you might work with, what your needs are. Yeah, I would I would look at your stack and where your business logic sits in it too, and you know go for hiring the experienced people to help you get that part set up, and maybe you can have smaller teams building off of that on the front end, just kind of trying to break up all your architecture into groups, so they can work independently and still communicate to build something cohesive. Yeah, and even just you know all all over the place, like building building the core backend and then building all the 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 views or the, the web facets, you know. Great. All right. Um, that's all the time we have. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank, thank you all for uh, sharing you. all your you, great experience you. with us.